You remember last time we spoke about this very, very crucial doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. And just by way of a very quick and brief review, I told you that there is a very good and succinct definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. And let me refresh it for you, especially for those of you who might not have been here. And that is this. We can define the Trinity by saying the following statement, which I think is very, very helpful in discussing this very crucial doctrine. Within the one being, that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me give that to you again because it's so very important and I think it would be well for you to write that down to remember how to succinctly define the doctrine of the Trinity. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you remember I said to you that one of the helpful ways to understand this somewhat complex understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity is to understand that we are talking about one what and three who's. The one what is the essence or being of God. And the three who's are the three persons that make up that divine reality, that divine essence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three who's are the three members or persons that make up the what or the divine essence, the one being that is God. That is very, very important to remember because we're not saying that there are three essences, three beings, one being, God, eternally coexisting in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember also last time we discussed the three crucial aspects that the Bible teaches regarding this one God, and that is that God the Father is spoken of in the Scripture as God Himself. And we looked at a number of passages which teach that truth, that God the Father is said to be, according to the Bible, God. And then we looked at a number of passages that also clearly taught us that God the Son Jesus Christ is also God. But the Bible teaches very unmistakably that the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is also God. Very, very clearly. We looked at a number of passages, including John 1.1, a number of other passages in John's Gospel, and also a number of Paul's epistles, Colossians 1, Uh, Titus 2.13, and then, of course, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 8, 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 3, and even looked at a couple of passages from the Old Testament, Isaiah 9.6 and Isaiah 10.21, that speak of the divinity 
of Christ, which we'll actually deal with in greater detail in our times ahead when we talk about the crucial doctrine of the deity of Christ. As a separate aspect of the discussion regarding the Trinity, because that is so often attacked, but at least we briefly looked at the idea that God the Son, or Jesus Christ, is called God in the Bible, unmistakably. And then we briefly looked at the concept that the Holy Spirit, the third member or person of the Godhead, is also spoken of in the Bible as being God. You don't have three gods, you have one God eternally existing in three persons. Not three essences, but three persons. Three co-equal, co-eternal beings, persons, but they may make up the one being that is called God. And I told you last time that that was the biblical support for the concept of Trinity. And then I told you that we would discuss in part two of our lesson on the doctrine of the Trinity the theological deducements or the theological teaching regarding the Trinity. And this is very, very important because often uh, I hear people talking about the fact, well, there may be passages in the Bible which seem to suggest that there are three persons and one God, but there are also theologies or people who spout theology uh, that seem to confuse matters. They sort of take things outside of the Scripture and they try to prove the Trinity. And sometimes people become very confused. You may have heard at times people trying to use helpful analogies to teach the Trinity. Uh, For instance, sometimes people talk about the concept of water and how water is both a liquid, water is a solid like ice, and water is a gas. But it is also true that those kinds of analogies can be not helpful in one sense because obviously, even though that is true about the components of water, it's not three distinct things, right? It's made up of one substance or one issue. And so we have to be very, very careful. Sometimes I've heard people use the analogy that someone is, is a son to their father, someone is a husband to their wife, and also they have children. And so sometimes they try to make the analogy work uh, in that realm as well. And sometimes those are, are helpful, at least as people understand some aspects of the Trinity, but we have to be so very, very careful that we come up with sound and right kinds of theology regarding the Trinity. Now, there are other people, on the other hand, who will say, now, wait a minute. If the Bible produces a doctrine, proves a doctrine like the Trinity, there are these numbers of passages that you looked at last time, Why do we need to go beyond what the Bible says regarding these matters? Why do we have to develop a wider theology? Uh, Why do we have to amass all of this data to form a biblical doctrine called the Trinity? And I believe that's very, very important. It's a very crucial question to answer. And I believe the right answer is this. God never intended any of us to understand His Word apart from a systematization of it. God never wanted us to understand His Word apart from a coherent, logical, consistent marshalling of all of the biblical data to produce truth, to produce a theology. In other words, 
For instance, if you took the matter of prayer and you wanted to find out what the Bible says regarding prayer, well, you could start in the book of Genesis and you could go all the way through to Revelation and you could find massive amounts of information regarding the ministry and doctrine of prayer. But God also wants us to take every one of the individual parts related to something like prayer, and He wants us to come up with a consistent and coherent and logical whole among the parts. For instance, if you wanted to come up with the doctrine of prayer as it relates to temptation, you would need to find all of the passages in the Bible in their individual components And you would need to find all of them and then bring them together to understand the entire doctrine of prayer as it relates to temptation. For instance, if you wanted to find out about the biblical doctrine of temptation itself, you would find all of the passages in the Scripture that speak of temptation and you would study them all together. And when you finally were able to put them all together in a logical and coherent fashion you would have what some theologians call a systematic theological look at temptation. And that is not wrong. In fact, that is very, very helpful. We have been going through, as you know, on Friday mornings, our Doctrine and Devotion series. And we have been taking ourselves through Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, and we have been studying what the Scripture says in the whole by looking at the component parts of different theological issues. And that's very helpful. For instance, we would not know all that we would need to know, nor all that we should need to know about the doctrine of salvation unless we took all of the individual passages on the subject of salvation and brought them together. Now some might say, well, but here's the challenge with that. Here's the problem. Sometimes when people take the individual parts and they try to put them together in a systematic way, sometimes they come up with information or that which passes for theological truth, and it really doesn't fit. Sometimes they take verses out of context. Sometimes they'll say something about the doctrine of salvation that really isn't the amassing of all of the data into a systematized whole. And that is true. That is often true. When you do theology, you sometimes take passages and we lift them out of their proper context and we don't always put it together as we should. And so all of us have to be careful as noble Bereans studying the Scriptures daily that we take all of these individual passages and we put them together so that they all fit. In fact, that is why I believe Paul the Apostle said to Timothy, that we should never be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. And he uses a term there from his tent-making days. Literally, we are to cut straight the word of God. All of the individual pieces need to fit together in a logical and coherent and consistent whole from each individual part. And so the danger of systematic theology is often that these verses come at somewhat of a random position and they're not always fitted together or systematized in the proper fashion. But of course that's everyone's challenge. 
It doesn't mean that you throw out the baby with the bathwater. You don't simply then say, well, we won't do any systematic theology. You rather should say, let's go back to the individual passages and make sure that we've interpreted each of them in their right context so that when we then go and fit them together in the end product, everything fits nicely together. We don't have one aspect of our theology contradicting another aspect. And that's very, very important. God wants to take, a, take all of His Word and give it to us, but He also wants us to take His Word and arrange it in such a way that we can systematically understand our faith. That's a very good thing and a very proper thing. And when you come to the subject of the Trinity, there is probably no more important area than this subject that we should take and understand in a very clear and systematic way. You say, why is that true? Well, because of the two points I'm going to give you tonight. The first point is that we need to understand the Trinity in a theological way first from the Old Testament. We need to understand the Trinity from an Old Testament perspective, which means that we need to take all of the passages and ultimately fit them together in a systematized whole so that it comes out right, it fits together. And if you have done any study about the Trinity from your Old Testament, you're going to immediately come up with a challenge. And that challenge is that the Old Testament does not teach the Trinity. And you see, that is the precise reason why we need to marshal all of the passages from all of the applicable places in our Bibles to come up with a truth about a certain subject. And one of the first challenges that we have is that the Old Testament does not explicitly, nor in many views, does it implicitly teach the doctrine of the Trinity. And we need to understand that, especially as we attempt to defend our faith against those who would vigorously deny this crucial doctrine. You say, well, what about the Trinity as it relates to the Old Testament? Was it completely obscure? Uh, Was it somewhat obscure? Was it hinted at? Or are, in fact, there are there passages, in fact, that teach us about the Trinity in the Old Testament? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, that there are some who believe that the Old Testament does, in fact, teach the Trinity. And I'm going to give you four passages that we're going to look at tonight which could, could teach the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament. I want you to look, first of all, in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. And this will be exciting for us because when we teach systematically about doctrine, it's fun for us to discover things together. And we want to start in this matter of the Trinity by discovering what, in fact, the Old Testament does or does not say about this doctrine. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, a somewhat familiar passage to us, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so right at the beginning of our Bibles, we have what appears to be a reference to the Trinity because it uses plural language. Then God, that's singular of course, said, let us, that's plural, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And there is in Genesis 1.26 what appears to be a reference to more than one person in the one God. And there are many people who say, you see, you have it right there. There certainly is an implicit, if not explicit, reference to the Trinity. And then they'll also go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis 3:22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And there is an appearance again of, of what seems to be a reference to a plural personage in the one God. And then you have Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. Genesis 11:7. And in Genesis 11:7, the Bible says, speaking from God's perspective, come. Let us go down there, confuse their language, speaking again of the issue of the Tower of Babel. Come, let us go down there and there, confuse their language, so they will not understand one another's speech. And so three times in a relatively short period of time, we have what appears to be a reference to a plural personage in the one God. And then the last reference of this sort in our Old Testament is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And these are the four references that are appealed to by many people to affirm the Old Testament teaching or at least the inference of the teaching of the Trinity. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and this is Isaiah himself speaking, as though he were from God, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And again, there appears to be a reference to a plural understanding of the Godhead. And you say, well, if it is not that, which it seems to be fairly clear, what is it? And the answer to that, which many of you I'm sure know already, is that language itself and the speaking of language when one person is talking but using plural kinds of language is usually a reference to what is commonly called the plural majesty. The plural majesty. It's something akin to my saying this. If I were to uh, write a book, and if I were to have that book published, and if I were to tell you on a particular Sunday morning that that book, in fact, had been published, and it was ready in the lobby at the back at the end of the service, I I might say something like this. Now, we put this book together to help Christians grapple with such and such an issue in the Christian life. And notice, 
if it has my name on the book as the author, and yet I say to you, now we put this book together, I would be using the plural understanding. Now that could imply that I was not the only one who worked on such a book, even though my name is the only name that appears there. But it could also be a device, a language device, that I use to simply communicate that I wrote the book, but I'm not wanting to refer to myself alone in that first-person kind of usage. And that's a very, very common thing. We might hear someone refer to it as the royal we. And that is a very common way of speaking. In other words, when, a, when you're using a plural designation to refer to one person, that is very acceptable in language usage. Sometimes you might hear a king or a president talk about we when it's clear in the context that he's only referring to himself. And that really doesn't do any injustice to any of these texts. And in fact, it is probably the majority of cases among scholars and Bible teachers that these references are not an implicit or explicit teaching on the Trinity from the Old Testament. It is probably in most of their minds simply a use of language and not a theological understanding of the plural uses in those contexts. And that's very, very clear. That is my view. Uh, Augustine, however, believed that it was a hint at the Trinity, and it's certainly not wrong for anyone to say, I believe that those are hints. It's just a matter of understanding how those particular plural usages are going to be understood. I think that the best reasons are to refer to them as the plurals of majesty or the royal we and not to see them as references to the Trinity. You say, why? Well, because in no other place in all of the Old Testament, in any of the 39 books of the Old Testament, there is no other teaching, certainly no explicit teaching, on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so since there is no explicit or implicit teaching anywhere else, none of the prophets, none of the Old Testament Bible writers really ever speak of the issue of the three persons in the one God. And so I think those references are properly understood because obviously all of the same writers I just referred to, they are the writers of those plural we's, and so they probably have used them in a language device not intending to imply the Trinity. Now you say, well, does that undercut then the argument on the part of a Christian to defend the Trinity? Well, remember... Every passage that we look to, everything that we try to understand to defend our faith is not by us an attempt to find passages that aren't really teaching what we might otherwise want them to teach. We have to be very, very careful that when we marshal all of our arguments together, we don't become sloppy and we take passages that really don't teach what we would otherwise love for them to teach so that we could try to prove what we believe. If it isn't there, we don't teach it. If it isn't precise, we're careful. And when we do our speculation, we make sure that our arguments are as clear and as precise and as cogent as they possibly can be. But if we have anything that sounds like a very good argument on the other side, we have to be very, very careful. We say, well, how do we understand then 
the idea of the Trinity. If we're supposed to believe it as Christians, if it's so cardinal to our faith, then you're telling me that the 39 books of the Old Testament don't teach it. How is that supposed to give me confidence as I defend this doctrine to those who deny it? Well, let me give you a good quote by Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. He was a turn-of-the-century theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary, probably along with Jonathan Edwards, uh, the two greatest theologians that America has ever produced in God's providence. And he says something very, very wise with regard to this matter of the Old Testament issue of the Trinity. He says this, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings it out into clearer view, and much of what is in it was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. He goes on to say, The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament. But the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows, the New Testament, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. End quote. Here's what he means. What he's saying is the Old Testament does not explicitly reveal this mystery called the Trinity. It sometimes appears as it's almost coming to the surface, but not quite. It doesn't mean it isn't there. It simply means that God in His providence did not choose to allow it to come to a full bloom, to allow the light to come into the chamber to expose what was already there, but was too dimly lit for us to see it in the first place. You say, well, what are some of these things that allow it to almost come to the surface? Well, you have, for instance, a very clear reference in, in thousands and thousands of cases of the person of God the Father, right? All through the Old Testament, God the Father is clearly mentioned. And then you have other references that mention, for instance, the angel of the Lord. And there are many people who believe that the angel of the Lord is a theophany, a Christophany, some might say. Abraham at one time was talking uh, to what appeared to be a man, but might also, upon further reflection, actually have been the person of Christ, dialoguing with Abraham. Why we would call it a Christophany or a Theophany, an appearance of the person of Christ before his incarnation. Now there is what appears there to be an implicit understanding or the possibility of the understanding of the Trinity just bubbling underneath the surface. You also have a reference, for instance, in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, of the Spirit hovering over the waters of creation. And you could make a case, of course, that that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But then again, there is a clear understanding that God is a Spirit as well, and so it could actually be referring to God the Father. And so you cannot be dogmatic with some of these things, but you can simply say it appears from the Old Testament that there are gentle yet somewhat obscure hints at the mystery of the Trinity as seen in the Old Testament. 
And it's very, very important for us not to make a case, like with those plural we's, as though that is a dogmatic affirmation of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We have to be very, very careful there. So, what do we do? So far, I haven't bolstered anyone's faith. I haven't given anyone cause for celebration. But let me tell you unmistakably that the Trinity, the Godhead, is clearly revealed in the New Testament. Although not explicitly taught. You say, how can both be true? Well, they are. Remember now, when we do theology, we take all of the passages which suggest something, and when we marshal all of them together, we come up with what appears to be a very clear and cogent and coherent teaching on a particular subject. And that is is exactly what we have with the matter of the Trinity in the New Testament. You say, well, why can't you just dogmatically say that the Trinity is explicitly taught in the New Testament? Well, if I were, what passage might I go to? What passage would we appeal to that teaches unmistakably, in clear language, in an explicit way, the doctrine of the Trinity? You see, every passage that we're going to go to is a passage which alludes to the Trinity, which certainly seems to speak of three persons acting as the one God, but there is no passage even in the New Testament which speaks so forcefully and so pointedly to the matter of the Trinity. And yet, it is nonetheless true, and it is nonetheless one of the cardinal issues of our Christian faith. You say, well, that is quite provocative and intriguing. You'd better move on quickly. All right, I will. Let me show you what I mean. The Trinity, in fact, is definitely alluded to in the New Testament, but it is not explicitly taught there either. Here's the reason. The reason is because the Trinity is seen in the incarnation of Christ and in the coming of the Holy Spirit who descends upon the church. You say, the New Testament teaches that for sure. Yes, it does. The New Testament New Testament most assuredly teaches the fact of the incarnation. But in all the references to the fact of the incarnation, it does not include any explicit teaching that the incarnation itself is proof of the Trinity. You see what I mean? For instance, the Bible teaches in the New Testament explicitly that the Holy Spirit will descend upon the church in power. But every time that reference is given, for instance in Acts 1.8, It doesn't explicitly teach the subject of the Trinity. What you have to do is you have to take all of these passages and you have to systematize them all together to produce the doctrine. You say, well, if it is not explicitly taught then, then maybe it isn't true. No, because when you teach all of the Scripture together, and that's what you must do, you can come up with things that are very definitely taught in the Scripture and must be believed and affirmed, even though they may not in one particular place explicitly teach such a doctrine. It makes it no less important and no less crucial. For instance, with regard to this aspect of the New Testament and its teaching on the Trinity, you might say it this way. The New Testament records the events which allude to the Trinity without being forced to spell the doctrine out in explicit terms. 
That's very, very important. And what you need to do when you talk with someone, say, for instance, a Jehovah's Witness or someone with the Way International, I just talked with someone uh, in our church this week who said that they have a person who works for them who is a member of the Way International, the cult, that denies the Trinity, denies the deity of Christ. Well, now, it would be very important if that person were involved in a discussion to acknowledge that there is no explicit teaching in any one passage that might say something like this. The Bible teaches the Trinity without a doubt. Hesitations 3.1. Because there is no such passage. But, having said that, the New Testament does record the events which, when taken together, prove unmistakably that God is three in one. Because the New Testament records the incarnation of Christ and it records the absolute fact of the deity of Christ. The New Testament also explicitly teaches the deity of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, right? Verses 1 to 11. But the explicit teaching in Acts 5 needs to be taken and it needs to be blended with the passages which speak of the deity of Christ. And then the passages which speak of the deity of Christ need to then be blended with the passages that speak of the deity of God the Father. And then when you marshal all of those passages together, you come up with a very clear teaching on the Trinity, the doctrine of the Godhead. And so the key word, I think, for us is that the New Testament records the events which allude to the Trinity without being forced to spell out the explicit doctrine of the Trinity. James White, who has written what I now consider probably the best book written so far on the Trinity. It's called The Forgotten Trinity. And it's published by Bethany House Publishers and it's brand new and it's very, very helpful and it's very readable. And he says this, very, very wise words. He says, The Trinity is revealed not in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament but rather in between the Testaments, in the ministry of Christ and of the founding of the church. These events are recorded for us in the New Testament, but they took place before a word of the New Testament was written. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the fact of the incarnation and the fact of the coming of the Holy Spirit occurred before a word of the New Testament was written. And so you can't necessarily find it in the New Testament, but the New Testament records these facts, and therefore it records the truth of the Trinity. He says, These events are recorded for us in the New Testament, but they took place before a word of the New Testament was written. The Trinity is a doctrine not revealed merely in words, but instead in the very action of the triune God in redemption itself. In other words, when you look at redemption, you see God the Father initiating the plan of salvation. You see God the Son coming to earth to be the promised Messiah. And then you have God the Holy Spirit who then applies the person of Christ in the matter of salvation to the individual heart and life. And so you marshal all of those things together and you can come up with a very clear view of God initiating the plan, of the Son becoming the one to fulfill the plan, and then the Holy Spirit becoming the one to apply the plan. And so, therefore, you can have confidence in the Trinity. 
He goes on to say, We know who God is by what He has done in bringing us to Himself. The Father loving His people and sending the Son. The Son loving us and giving Himself in our place. The Spirit entering into our lives and conforming us to the image of Christ. Here is the revelation of the Trinity in the work of Christ and the Spirit. This explains why we don't find a single passage that lays out in a creedal format the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there's no one passage that says, Thus shall you believe in the Trinity. But it is all over as an illusion and an implicit affirmation of the Trinity of God. Now, does this undermine the biblical doctrine of the Trinity? No, not at all. In fact, what it does is it enhances the doctrine because it grounds the Trinity in a series of historical, factual, verifiable events which then bolster that truth rather than taking anything away from it. The New Testament records and therefore reveals the various accounts which prove the theological basis for a belief in the Trinity. You say, well, all of that is fine and good, but I still am going to need some passages which at least allude to the fact of the Trinity if I'm ever going to hope to convince anyone. Because theology in and of itself won't do it. Well, that is partially true. You could sit down and talk with a person, say a person with the Way International or the Jehovah's Witness cult, and you could talk with them theologically until you're blue in the face, and what are they going to do? They're going to try to deny the Trinity by their theology, right? And so it is true that since we are presuppositional apologists, the one thing that we must have at our disposal is a number of passages which at least allude to the doctrine of the Trinity so that you can, on the basis of those passages, say, I believe that each of those passages, when taken in the context of the whole, prove the theological and biblical basis of the Trinity. And I want to share those passages with you as we close tonight. Here they are. And there are only some of them. There are many, many passages in the New Testament. I wish that we had time to go over every single one of them. I don't know exactly how many there are, but we wouldn't have the time in a number of Sundays to go through them. But at least I'm going to give you several. And the first is probably one of the clearest, and that is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. That's the familiar passage on the Great Commission. The Great Commission alludes to the Godhead, to the Trinity, by mentioning all three persons or members of the Godhead at the same time in the same context. Now, see, you may have said to yourself, well, I've used that passage for years to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, that's okay. As long as we acknowledge to people that we are not saying by that that this passage is an explicit doctrinal teaching of the Trinity. It is certainly an illusion, no question about it. But we have to be fair because obviously they will try to spar with us against such a truth and we'll simply make the acknowledgement and say, but... All of the passages which I'm about to share with you, I believe that the mountain of evidence clearly proves a basis to believe in the Trinity. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Pastor Jeff Crotz, when he baptized those two people this morning, gave in the baptismal formula that we're very familiar with the very clear allusion to the Trinity, right? In the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Noting, of course, that each of the members of the Godhead has a name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, did you notice that it is not in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Because someone might assume by that that it's three modes of the one God, not three persons. And remember, I said to you last time, we have to do our very best not to become modalistic. That means that we assume that it's both one God and one person at any one time. And when it's God the Father, when He acts, it's God the Father and no other persons. When it's God the Son, it's not God the Father and God the Holy Spirit when the Son is acting. And when it's the Holy Spirit, it's not the Father and it's not the Son acting, but only the Holy Spirit, and He's only one person at one time. That is not true, and that was a heresy called Sabellianism or modalism that was condemned early on in the history of the church. Clearly, the Bible teaches three distinct persons. And that's why this passage is so very, very crucial, because it says, in the name of the Father and and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit in terms of that language that's used there. It's very distinct and it's very clear. It's the name of, name of, name of in the original text. And so that is very, very important for us to understand. In fact, the Jehovah's Witness and a number of other cults often try to answer these kinds of passages by simply saying, well, that's no problem for us because we believe that Jesus Christ is a person who could and did baptize because the New Testament teaches it. And so when it says baptizing in the name of the Son, that's simply a reference to those instances where Jesus Christ himself did some baptizing. But to, us, but to assert that is obviously taking out of context the passage itself. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ here was the agent of baptism, right? It says here that when we, as disciples of Christ, do the baptizing, Christ is telling us that this is how they are going to be baptized by us. So this passage is a clear allusion to the Trinity. Here's another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 4 through 6. And again, an allusion to the Trinity in one passage. Here it says, Now, there are variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. An obvious reference to the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, verse 5, and the same Lord. A reference to Christ, who is called, I think, uh, over a thousand times in the New Testament by this name, Kyrios, which is the name Lord. And it's used, I think, 7,000 times to refer 
to God the Father in the Old Testament. And then in verse 6, there are varieties of effects, but the same God. A reference to God the Father who works all things and all persons. So you have in those those three verses, the same Spirit, verse 4, the same Lord, verse 5, and the same God. Now again, if those who would deny this doctrine, they say, well, that's... That's a convenient thing. What you've done is you've argued in a circular fashion. You've wanted the passage to be referring to all three persons, and so therefore you make it so. Well, that may be true to some degree, but there is, because of this passage and so many others, such a clear reference to three different persons that it forces us, it challenges us, to come up with a doctrine that explains these three persons. And so it is very right for us. We believe it's honorable to see these passages as a reference or an allusion to the Trinity. There's another in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is the benediction of the Apostle Paul as he ends this second epistle to the Corinthians. And the way he ends this benediction is by saying in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, now that is a clear reference to Christ, and the love of God, which often God the Father is not known as God the Father. He is most often known in the New Testament as simply God, which is more often than not a reference to God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, if Paul was not Trinitarian, why would he use or write a verse like this? What would be his purpose? Who would he be identifying in the very same subject, in the very same sentence with God the Father if he was not Trinitarian? Why why the lofty reference to the Holy Spirit? Why such an exalted reference along with God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ was a created being? You see, it's inconsistent. And so there we have, at least on the very outset, three passages which certainly, which certainly allude to the Trinity. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You remember the actual baptism of Christ himself. After being baptized, Matthew 3.16, Jesus came up immediately from the water. That's a reference to the person of Jesus himself. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God... It's a reference to the Holy Spirit descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. An obvious reference to God the Father speaking of Jesus as his beloved Son. And you have that same thing repeated in the parallel gospel accounts in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And John chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. All of those parallel passages, but also speaking of the clear allusion to the Trinity of God. And then in John chapter 14, John 14, verse 17. I give all these passages to you, and I want us to look them up, lest we ever be accused 
of simply saying that the Bible alludes to it, we believe it's a fact, without going through some of these passages themselves and looking at them in their context. In John chapter 14, verse 17, maybe even backing up to 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth. So, you have Jesus speaking. He's referring to the Father giving a gift, and the gift is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And that abode, of course, is verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. That's who is abiding in us through power. The Holy Spirit's power is resident within. And so you see some very clear, again, allusions to the Trinity. Now here's one that's probably not often thought of, but nonetheless very powerful in Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, 28. I like this one because it's one that often puts the cultists off balance. And I love to do that. Acts 20.28, because this is not on their list of passages to have an answer for. Acts 20.28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders there on the island of Miletus, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, a reference to God the Father, which He purchased with His own blood. And we know, of course, that that was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so again, in one verse, there is a reference to all three persons of the Godhead. And again, as I said, we could go through passage after passage after passage, which makes this allusion so very clear in our Bibles. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, And then in verse 4, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, a reference to Christ, a reference to God the Father, and a reference to the Holy Spirit. A couple of other passages that we don't have time to look at, but I just want to give them to you. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. Romans 5, 5 to 10. Romans chapter 8. Verses 2 through 17, a number of times in verses 2 through 17, it's a reference to all three members of the Godhead. And maybe one that we should look at, Ephesians chapter 1, which is probably the greatest and most powerful allusion to the Trinity. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reference to the two persons of the Godhead who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then as you go on down through this passage, you come to the place 
where you see in verse 13, In Him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, it can't become more explicit than that, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then it goes on in chapter 2 to talk also about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so these passages, as you marshal them all together, you find very clearly these allusions to the Trinity. In Philippians chapter 3, Verse 3, it defines a Christian and it says a Christian is this kind of person. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A reference to the second and third persons of the Godhead. And then in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus, a reference to God the Father. So, these passages, and let me just give you a couple of more that you can write down. 1 Peter 1.2. 1 Peter 1.2. And Jude 20 and 21, which is a great place for us to end because it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And there are many more. As we close tonight, I want you to hear a quote from Robert Bowman who has written a very excellent book called Why You Should Believe in the Trinity. And he really succinctly brings it to a climax by saying this. He says, when he writes about all of the biblical and historical and theological witness, it constitutes, quote, a solid cumulative case for the position that the faith of the New Testament is Trinitarian. By that is meant not that it is necessary to know or accept the word Trinity to be a Christian, but that the Christian faith revealed in the New Testament is what the doctrine of the Trinity says it is. To be a Christian, it is not necessary to know or understand the formal expressions of Trinitarianism that were the result of centuries of reflection on the New Testament. 
in the light of heretical distortions of that faith. However, to be a Christian, one must not reject the faith that the doctrine of the Trinity was constructed to safeguard. You remember when I started in part four and I said to you that very famous and oft-repeated phrase that the man who tries to define the Trinity will lose his mind, but the man who denies the Trinity will lose his soul. It is that clear-cut. It is that cardinal to our faith. Because if you deny the deity of the Holy Spirit, you're denying God. If you deny the deity of the Son, you're denying God. If you deny the deity of God the Father, you're denying God. It's a package deal and we must affirm the Trinity because it is what our faith is held in contrast to all the distortions of it. Bowman ends by saying, Moreover, to be a responsible Christian, not merely in the sense of obtaining personal salvation, but in the sense of being a full partner with the rest of Christ's church in the fellowship and service of Christ, one must accept the doctrine of the Trinity not to accept the Trinity after the church carefully and cautiously developed it in response to attacks on its faith is to deny that Christ preserved His church through the ravages of heresy and apostasy and thereby implicitly to insult Christ. In other words, if we have as our forefathers those who vigorously defended the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit and the deity of God the Father and in the midst of standing against all of the heresy and all of the distortions of the three persons of the one God. And if we don't continue on with that legacy, then we're insulting not only in Christ, Christ, but we're insulting those who stood for Christ in that day. And that is why people today who sort of almost in an offhanded way or in a flippant way deny the doctrine of the Trinity. It's something to be held so carefully and so cautiously and so triumphantly that none of us, as we try to understand these things and we're not able to fully understand them, but we say this is one of the sacred doctrines of our faith because it is so important for us to lift up and exalt the persons of the Godhead. As I said to you in the last message, I love the Trinity. I love the Godhead. And if we are true worshipers of God, we will love the persons of the Godhead. We will say about the Trinity that it is the blessed Trinity. And it is that which is a personal relationship to all three persons. Sometimes we look at the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit and we refer to Him as it or uh, we have sloppy language that sometimes really doesn't show us the importance of these things. But the Holy Spirit is a person and we know Christ is a person and God the Father, even though not having a body, is a spirit, but He too is a person. Now, Sometimes people ask me the question, is it right to pray directly to Christ or pray directly to the Holy Spirit? Well, while the New Testament doesn't show us to do that. It certainly, I don't believe, would be wrong to do it. If we were precise, we would say that we pray in the power of the Spirit through the person of Christ to God the Father and give Him the glory. But it's certainly all right, and I think sometimes even just an expression of our life with the Trinity to pray to all three of them. I love some of those hymns that choose to exalt each of the persons of the Godhead and sings a hymn 
uh, a chorus, a line to each one of them. It really just... It really just sends goosebumps down my spine because it allows me to know that I'm worshiping the fullness of the Godhead. Maybe Todd can, can give us the opportunity to sing that as we close our service tonight. Some hymn that exalts the Trinity. Why don't you bow your heads with me? I want you to, to ask yourself the question, do you in your life think anything let alone much about the person of the Godhead, the persons of the Godhead, the fact that the Trinity is for us a beautiful doctrine, a lovely doctrine, because we're talking about the persons who have been involved in granting us this wonderful salvation. Do you understand the cruciality of the Trinity? Do you thank God for these persons? Do you exalt each member? Do you meditate upon each of the persons and their role? Not only in the salvation process, but in the process of creation. Do you think about your life as it relates to God the Father and His initiating a plan that gave you and me salvation. And how the person of Christ, Jesus Himself, became incarnate and took on that form of a man and became obedient. But that the Holy Spirit, the third person, applied the truth of that good news, that gospel, to my own soul. The Holy Spirit took out my heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh. And that each of the three persons of the Godhead were intimately involved in bringing me to a place of redemption. Lord, I... I'm so thankful that you've given me a desire to read and to study and to affirm these crucial elements of my faith. And I praise you that you've given these beloved people a love and a desire to study these things. That's why they're here. And I praise you and we love the triune God. How could we have ever thanked you enough for what each of the persons have done in our lives? Father, we love you and Christ, we love you. And Holy Spirit, we love you. And we know that it's through your power, Holy Spirit, that gives us the strength and the courage and the wisdom through your inscripturated word to live the Christian life in a dynamic way. And it's you, Christ, and what we have by virtue of our union with you that gives us this wonderful, blessed salvation.
And it is all because, Father, You initiated that plan in eternity past with the Son and with the Spirit so that we ultimately glorify You as does Christ, as does the Holy Spirit. Father, we confess that we don't think enough about the Trinity. And we don't pray enough and worship enough and glorify You enough for what You, the three persons, have done in us and through us. And may this reminder tonight be an ever so clear reminder. And all of these passages, when taken together, it would challenge us to read them and study them and memorize them to a place of holding you up in honor and glory. And may we take the opportunity now as we close our service to sing the praises that are due your name because of who you are. We pray in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit.